Good to see you, man. Hey, Kevin. Good to be back. Why don't we talk about this thing that musicians always like to get together and talk about, which is what's the worst or strangest or craziest gig you've ever had to put with? I know you have some great stories. Yeah, well, you know, all those years of bumping around, some of them you you want to forget. (laughs) But but yeah, geez. Well, you know, that's the, the one of the distinguishing characteristics about this uh, type of career, uh, a job as a musician, is that every time you have work, it's someplace, usually someplace different, or it's something new, something different. I mean, certainly there are gigs that last, you know, four or five nights a week that go on and on, but every, but the crowd is different. Um, so things are always, you never know what you're going to wind up with when you go go out on a job. Uh, some things are more dependable than others, but uh, a lot of times you wind up in situations that are uh, uniquely uh, different, if you will. You know, one, one of the stories that you told me a while back that I think would be fun to tell is that the job, I think it was at uh, here uh, outside of Atlanta, a place called Callaway Gardens. Oh, yeah, okay, that's that's kind of funny. Um, yeah, Callaway Gardens, south of Atlanta, mm-hmm. beautiful garden place. I was a sophomore in college. I had just started, like maybe I'd only done two or three paying gigs on piano. I had played in a salsa band, but that's a whole nother story. Mm-hmm. And um, I got hired for this gig to take a jazz trio down to Callaway Gardens and play for four hours for all the people there. It's not a short drive. It's not that far. But, you know, it was a trip and the money wasn't great. But to me, you know, it was good money getting, getting paid to play music. Mm-hmm. So I, I have this electric bass player and a drummer. And I have a keyboard and we go down there. And they, they set us up in this, like, uh, not atrium, we're outdoors, like a courtyard that leads to all the different paths all around the garden. And we're setting up to play, and um, there's no electricity for the keyboard or the bass, so I asked, like, the, 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 the staff working there if they could get some electricity. And the next thing I know, the manager comes up who had hired us and says, oh, no, 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 there's no electricity. I said, well, we, we have electronic instruments. He says, oh, no, no, you're not supposed to actually play. We have music. We pipe it all over the garden. We just want you to pretend like you're playing. <laughs> and I was so young. I thought, well, maybe that's what happened. So we mimed for almost four hours, which is ridiculous because people would walk by us. And they could tell we're not making any sound, right? Because the speakers were like the other side of the garden. Well, that has to be, that has to rank as one of the strangest gigs. <laughs> Mike, I have to finish the story because there's a, there's a second part. This, the very next gig, these were all Christmas gigs. So the very next gig I had was at Rich's Department Story, which was downtown, which later then became a Macy's. And it's um, same trio. And we got hired to play Christmas music for this thing. Um, we were all students at Georgia State. That's why the, that's where we were getting the gigs from. They were calling them, looking for cheap music. So we show up at at Riches, and it's got um, an atrium that goes up eight floors with um, you know balconies over it. So each floor you could walk out and look down. There'd be a tree at the bottom, you know. And the lady brothers had this great idea. 
um, she put me on the sixth floor <laughs> on, the, on the balcony and the drummer on the eighth floor and the bass player on like the fourth floor. We could see, we could see each other, you know, across the way, but she wanted us to play together. And so at this point in time, these were the first two gigs the three of us had done. We just thought, wow, this is what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> this is what life as a musician oh, okay, is, this is just going to be like. <laughs> you know, we kept saying and telling her, you know, we can't hear each other. She said, yeah, but you can see you'll be fine. And we did that gig too. So imagine being on, this, on the like sixth floor and there's just this drummer. Give me one of your stories, man. I'd been on the road for years and I first moved to New Orleans I decided at some point in my career that I, I want, I didn't want to play. Uh, you know, this is a, a a situation that a lot of musicians. Um, um, the, this is the way you can work steadily. You, know, you sign up with a booking agency, and they send you around mm-hmm. from town to town. Now you're not playing. They don't send you to New York or Chicago or L.A. They send you to places where they sent me, which was like Minot, North Dakota and Waterloo, Iowa. Wow. And Logansport, Indiana. Now you're playing in a nice club. You're playing in the best club in town, but it's probably one of the only clubs in town too. But at any rate, after doing that for a few years, I decided that that wasn't the way I wanted to pursue this career. So I decided I'd go someplace where music was uh, 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 popular, uh, where there was a lot of opportunity where there was a lot of music. So eventually I wound up in New Orleans. And I was very thrilled when I got there and I was out looking for work. And the first job I got, uh, now I had played guitar and sang most of my life, but singing first and then backing myself up with an instrument. And then I was just starting to work with piano, which was doing better for me because I had had piano lessons as a kid anyway. So I was out looking for work and somebody told me, I you go talk to Johnny over there at the bar. He's got a gig for you. Uh, if you're looking to play, uh, if you can play some, some music, he's, he, need, he needs a piano player. So I went over and talked to this guy. I said, yes, yeah, show up at this club uh, tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock. Your, your, your music will be 4 to 6 tomorrow afternoon. And what it turned out to be is it turned out to be a strip club. And I was playing behind strippers. <laughs> now here I was pretty much a, like a folk singer <laughs> and, and I'm having to please, figure please out please tell me you were singing Bob Dylan songs <laughs> while they were stripping I just started hammering on the piano and it seemed to work out okay I didn't get fired but of course that was one and done I was that was not the career I was looking for I was I was taking a trip on tour of South Florida Again, very young. So we're just trying to get filler gigs. And this agent booked us to play a donut shop. <laughs> it was called Our Donuts. It's in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, what do we know? So we show up at this donut shop, Mike, and all the windows are blacked out. And there is literally a guy at the front door sitting on a stool with an eye patch. He looks like he's 100 years old. <laughs> and we get there. He checks our IDs. We're not all 21. <laughs> He lets us as anyway. Anyway, it is a topless donut shop. The R stands for risque. <laughs> That's a pretty weird place to book music at one in the afternoon. <laughs> to be clear, it was not the A team working serving the donuts. Yeah. You know, so it, that was just that. That was strange. 
Well, you know, you get into so many different situations. I, I signed up to play with a, a rock and roll band once. I played with this rock and roll band out of East St. Louis, which is a, a heart and soul kind of mm-hmm. town on the Illinois side of oh, the sure. Mississippi yeah. River. Uh, and a lot of great musicians. Russell Gunn. Came out of East St. Mm-hmm. Louis. Right. Of course, uh, Chuck Berry came out of East yeah. St. Louis. been uh, I think Ike and Tita Turner had some sort of connection to East St. Louis. Uh, anyway, I was playing with this rock and roll band, and we we set up in this club, and it seemed to be, you know, it was a big kind of empty space like many rock and roll clubs, where this was back in the uh, early 70s. And um, so when we... Uh, it was time for us to start playing. We started playing. All of a sudden, I hear this mechanical noise, uh, like screeching of of gears turning and turning. And what was happening is that they were raising this chain link fence in front of the bandstand because it was it was. This is like the Blues Brothers. <laughs> that they did that, and they showed that in that movie. But it actually was. This place was uh, sort of famous for people getting a little bit too drunk and throwing their drinks at the band if they didn't like what they were hearing. So at least the chain link fence. Now you still got wet, but at least oh my at least the beer can didn't hit you. That's crazy. Here's a story I like to tell, Mike. It's true. It's it could be like a scene from an Elmore Leonard novel or something. It's so odd. In um, Kings Bay, Georgia, is this little city just north of Jacksonville. It's where the nuclear um, submarine base is for the Navy. But it's still a tiny town. I got hired by this guy who heard us play in Jacksonville. He was going to open a jazz club in Kings Bay, Georgia, which itself is sounds odd, but okay. Um, it's going to call, be called Love's Downtown Jazz Club. Great. So we booked the gig. Everything's solid. We're going to play the grand opening of the club. When we get there, it's a house on the outskirts of this tiny town that had at one time been a nail salon. The nail salon sign is still up, and he had put a banner over it on one side that said, Love's Downtown Jazz Club. Obviously, it's not downtown, first of all. (laughs) And we go in. You know, it had some walls removed in order to make room for whatever had been a nail salon. And we get up, there's a stage, the place looks pretty nice, we set up, and eventually three people come in, and it's time for our show. Roy, this is still pretty sketchy, but there's three people here, we're going to play for them. And we played our hearts out for them, and they were not impressed, they were just like, they stayed and they clapped and everything. Well, it turns out, they also has going to have comedy at the club. So after we played our set, comedian was supposed to come up and do a show and then we do another set right so we finish our first set guess who the audience was it was the three comedians and they got up to do their thing one at a time and we like they just sat through our so we had to stay and listen <laughs> and the, the, they were terrible by the way <laughs> obviously if you're a comedian playing at you know, love down down jazz class. I'm not saying we were great either, okay? <laughs> but the first two, they were painfully unfunny, but we're in the audience. They clap for us. We're having to pretend. I'll never forget that the last guy got up. Big, overweight guy. He gets up and picks up the microphone and says, Kings Bay, Georgia. 
Remind me to fire my manager and kick his ass. Drops the mic. It was the funniest thing of the whole thing. And yes, we never got paid. Yeah, there you and go. The, and the place closed right mm-hmm. afterwards. It, Mr. Love was a nice man, though. He tried. He did, yeah, man. Well, um, you know, some some of the experiences that you have, again, you know, the, the point being here is that uh, oftentimes in in this business, you you're, you're just kind of here, there, and everywhere, and you don't really know what you might run into. Man, Mike, I kind of love it. I've seen the world doing this. And yeah, it's just, I mean, it's there are all kinds of people, right? There's yeah, there's the 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 positives far outweigh the negatives. That's for sure. But this is, in fact, these aren't really even negatives. They're just kind of funny things. But they're every once in a while can be a little scary. Uh, we were, uh, this is a, a band, I can't even remember who was in this band, but there were four or five of us, and we were playing, uh, we were getting booked around out of St. Louis and getting booked around the different areas in the Midwest, and we went into Illinois, uh, a small town in Illinois, this big theater. It was huge, and it was packed. There were a bunch of people in this place, and and we were on this huge stage. It was like, my goodness, this is like the coolest thing that ever happened to uh-huh. my little band. And we're playing away, and all of a sudden, the doors at the back of the theater open, and there's a string of uh, guys in motorcycle jackets that start coming in and going down both sides of the theater and then gathering in front of the stage and leaning up against the stage and looking out at the audience. And little by little, the audience started leaving the theater, <laughs> kind of sneaking out or getting out, they thought. Because uh-huh. they, they, they were a frightening-looking group. Sure. And I'll tell you, I, I do remember that my vibrato got a lot heavier that night. <laughs> Fortunately, nothing happened. We finished playing, and they left. But they just, I guess they just wanted to show that they were there and that they were in control, and they they certainly were. (laughs) You know that Louis Armstrong had to flee Chicago because of the mob? Went to New York to... To, to escape the because they were sending people to his shows to intimidate him. I mean, makes our story sound tame in yeah. a certain way, you know. Um, what's that story? Didn't you use one of my stories in your book? I did. You told me the story about uh, this piano. Well, well. Oh, the way, the way, yeah. Okay. The way I opened the chapter in the book. Uh, by the way, the book is called The Musician. Anyway, uh, the way I opened the chapter in the book was talking about how uh, for piano players, um, it's, there's an additional uh, unknown. You know, if you are a trumpet player, you've got your instrument with you. If you're a saxophone player, you've got that instrument maybe your whole life. If you're a bass player, whatever, drummer, you've got your drum set. If you're a piano player and you're going to a gig where there's a, and it's not electric, where you're going to play a, a, a piano that's already there, you just kind of keep your fingers crossed that the piano is going to be tuned and that it's going to be in good enough shape to play. And I know we've had, all had, I remember one experience that I had where that was so out of tune that some of the, num, some of the 
notes higher on the scale actually played lower than some of the notes lower. <laughs> At least they worked, right? <laughs> yes, but how do you play that? Anyway, so one of these uh, gigs was uh, when they, of course, they always tell you the pianos in good shape. Well, you know this. You know what the story is. Tuned. You know the standard joke is, which is actually a true one, is that you call the hotel or venue, say, "Hey, I'm playing there tonight." Uh, uh, is, what shape is the piano in? And they're like, oh, it's in great shape. We just had it painted. <laughs> Which that I've actually had that, so even though it's a joke, I've had that happen. And when I showed up, they had painted the piano with spray paint, <laughs> oh, which does not stick to the lacquer. So by the time I finished the gig, I had little black marks all over my, my hands and face. It was ridiculous. But but that's a whole other story. <laughs> the, uh, the story you're using about is is um, you were talking about is from my very first New Year's Eve gig I ever did. Uh, this is almost it's like the year same year as those first stories. Uh, I, I guess the, you know when you're starting out you get to the weird things. But this was a, a gig with a uh, saxophonist player from England who was much older than us. Uh, he, I, you know, my memory, he was like 80 or something, but maybe he was 40 or 50. Um, and it's way up in the mountains and I didn't have a reliable car. And I called ahead. They said the piano was in great shape. So I rode up with the drummer. Um, his, his name was uh, Tim Nash. The bass player was Ben Geddes. Just great guys. They had got me on the gig. And so I rode up with, with, with the drummer. Because they had a piano there. All I had was a giant keyboard anyway, you know. So it wasn't thin. There were the drums. So we get there, and it's a mountain lodge in the North Georgia mountains, like up with wooden decks and log cabin-style building, but kind of like a small country club. And we walk into the room we're supposed to perform, and there's a little tiny spent piano there. But the top is completely encased in gray duct tape holding it completely and it's clear that that duct tape has been on there a very very long time <laughs> it's gunked up and melted and all this stuff so obviously they had not just tuned the piano <laughs> i sit down to play the piano and i push the mid you know c for the milky and as i push it down all the adjacent keys go down <laughs> with it at, at you know degrading amounts of height and it's that way over most of the piano. Like, I've never seen anything like this. It's not like just two keys went down. You went put down, they all went down kind of like in a, in a row, like they were semi-attached. And now we only got like 30 minutes before we're supposed to play. Um, so we get, um, go to the kitchen, I guess, steak knife, got a couple of them. And me and the drummer, we start trying to get the duct tape off. We end up having to like try to saw through it. It takes forever. We finally get it off enough to open it up and look inside the piano. And instead of seeing hammers, all I see is this bunch of green, foamy-looking stuff. <laughs> like, over across of it. And, and what had happened was some kind of, This piano had been stored outside on the deck. The duct tape was supposed to keep water out, I guess. <laughs> and some Georgia tree spore had gotten into the wet felt of the hammers and had been growing and had grown all the way across the inside. And so we're like, well, let's get some of this apart so I can play because it's the only keyboard. So we got the steak knives and it looks like foam, but it's actually got, it's kind of hard and crusty. So we're sawing at it. And uh, I was the first one to break through and I did 
this gas of spores spewed out, hit the drummer in the front f- in his face. He breathed in. He turned over and threw over all over the dance floor. <laughs> the the um, the way called the um, person running the the event planner is is staying there horrified. <laughs> uh, we I held my nose. We managed to cover up a. Yeah, I got about two octaves free. They cleaned up the vomit. The people were already like twenty minutes late. The guys come in to hear us, the the party, right? And they're super drunk. <laughs> the band leader had told them that we, we were a country band. But all he played was Glenn Miller songs. And he thought as long as we started playing, they wouldn't care. It did not go over well. We literally had to flee. <laughs> that was my first New Year's Eve gig. And I was like, I'm, I'm not going to do this ever again, is what I thought. You know, one of the the things that you always look for with your band is opportunities to do, to sort of move up the food chain, if you will. Sure. Uh, I was playing with this, with uh, my club band in New Orleans, Metropolis. We were a very popular club band in New Orleans, and we got a call from uh, Pensacola. Uh, They were reopening the Sanger Theater. They had just renovated it, you know, I don't know how many months they had taken to to redo it, and it was this beautiful renovation of a Sanger Theater, of which is one of several Sanger Theaters. But So we were uh, engaged as the name act to come up from New Orleans to reopen the Sanger Theater. Well, they also, prior to us, they had hired a couple of local bands to, you know, to do the initial, uh, to do some initial playing. Well, the first band got up there and they played, and. Um, they, they had their friends there and everything and people were applauding and they're all excited because they're on this beautiful new stage at this beautiful new Sanger Theater. And so they decided to play another tune and then they decided to play another tune after that. And another. Well, the second band did basically the same thing. By the time they got to us and nobody was there uh, managing this situation. So by the time they got to us, it was after midnight. Uh-huh. There was a cloud of marijuana smoke totally engulfing the entire brand new beautiful Oh my god, theater. I can see this coming. <laughs> <laughs> and and anybody who hadn't left after, you know, the friends of the two early bands who was still there was was basically so stoned they were half asleep in their seats. So, it it turned out to be the opportunity that did not fulfill itself. <laughs> and I, and how many of those? <laughs> yeah, it happens. happens. Yes, you know, I all musicians. It's a, it's a. I'm, I'm, it's probably the same thing in other professions, of course. But we love sharing these stories. We all have them. There's a there's a book by a really great writer. There's, I mean, he writes as well as he plays. A guy named Don Asher. He helped write uh, Hampton Hawes' autobiography, which is considered one of the best jazz autobiographies. Um, yes, he was. Uh, he wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle. Exactly. Yeah, yeah a great writer. Great writer about about in his career. You know, he was a traveling, touring uh, pianist. Yeah, like, he settles in San Francisco, ends up backing up uh, Barbara Streisand, all these famous stars that would come in at this right. particular. His name is Don Asher, and his book is called uh, "Notes from a Barred Grand." He has a story in there that I relate so much to because. I had a very similar experience. His story is just so much better, though. He he's a young musician. He's in Missouri. I forget which town, though. Maybe Columbia, because um, he grew up in the same town as a famous jazz pianist, Jackie Byard, 
who kind of mentored him. But it's one of his first gigs. He's in the union. He gets, it's evidently like no one else was available. And they, he gets hired to play this gig by, um, by a saxophonist and um, who has a wife that they do gigs against. She's not a musician. So it's just kind of like a wedding band type of thing. And um, when he shows up for the gig, it's Barry Sax. The wife has a tambourine and a giant drum set. And he walks in, the leader is automatically sees him and has a look of disgust and disappointment. Like he's disappointed that this kid's gonna do this gig. So the kid's already super nervous, Don. is He's terrified, it's one of his first gigs, he wants to do good, but this guy doesn't even like him. And so he he still wants to do good, he sits at the piano, and he asks the guy, the leader, like, so what what songs are we gonna play? What any you know, he's got his books and stuff. He says it doesn't matter. Just when we start playing, just accompany us, you'll know what to do. He says, I need to know what the song is. He says, You don't need to know what the song is. He's like, Okay. So he's sitting there, and then these all these teenagers come in the room and they're all dressed. It's like a prom. And the band leader turns and says, Okay, one, two, three, four, and then the drummers starts beating the craps out of the drums as loud as he can <laughs> and the the lady with the tambourine starts screaming a song and shaking the tambourine like it. and on the on the Barry sax he's playing the lowest notes as loud as he can it sounds like complete chaos the drums have a good beat though turns out he's playing the prom for the local area school for the deaf <laughs> and they're playing as loud as they can so they can feel it it's just <laughs> I just imagine, and he should have at least told him. Imagine that you started playing. Yeah, <laughs> can't believe it. And you have played. Uh, yeah, I just one such gig. I had similar similar experience, but at least they told us what it was. Yeah, but still, it was very weird to play really loud. We played some. We didn't play nonsense. We played songs. We played really loud though. And I grew up with a deaf cousin, so I related to it. Mm -hmm. You know, this was uh, a center over here in Atlanta, off of Peachtree Road in Brookhaven. I still remember. It's still there. So, so our, our, our lesson learned from this episode is that you, as a musician, you will uh, enjoy a wealth of experiences that uh, change with every night on the job. It sure does. You know, they have a saying, Mike, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if I like it exactly, but they say, um, don't, do, don't do music for a living unless you have to. Which is a negative way of saying it. I, I, I do think, like so many other professions, it's great when, when you're in love with it, you know, then, then these little things, these, these challenges, they, they become more helpful than obstacles. Like they're, they, they feed. But of course, if, you, if you're only kind of wanting to do music, you know, you think maybe you'll be a star or something, but you don't are in love with the whole thing, that's going to be a big obstacle, mm -hmm. you know. But, yeah. You know, I didn't even get to the, the cruise ship story. There'll be another day. All right. <laughs>